Hello, everyone. I know we didn't have much time for a break, but if we could kind of come back into the room, we're gonna get started with our next panel. My name is Emily Eakins, and I'm a Vice President and the Director of Polling here at the Cato Institute, and it's a pleasure to join you this morning um, for our next panel that I will be moderating, The Politicization of Business, What Gives? To discuss this important topic, I am joined um, by the following panelists. I'll get started with Elizabeth Kemp. Elizabeth is an associate professor of finance at Harvard Business School. Her research, um, she researches the intersection of political economy and empirical corporate finance, and specifically the role of political partisanship and ideology in finance. Prior to joining HBS, she was a professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, and she holds a PhD in finance from Tilburg University in the Netherlands. I'm also joined by Robert Atkinson. He's the president and founder of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Before starting ITIF, Dr. Atkinson was a vice president of the Progressive Policy Institute and the director of PPI's Technology and New Economy Project. He has previously worked in the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations, and he received a PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We're also joined by Matthew Mitchell. He's a senior fellow at the Center for Economic Freedom and at the Fraser Institute, and a senior research affiliate at the Knee Center for the Study of Occupational Regulation at WVU. And his research focuses on public choice economics and the economics of government favoritism. And he received his PhD in economics from George Mason University. So we've got a panel of doctors. <laughs> You have to trust what they say. Okay, so I'm gonna turn the time over to each of our panelists for about five minutes or so of opening remarks. I think it would make sense for Elizabeth to begin um, to outline what we know about political polarization in the boardroom and in the private sector and what's driving it. And then next we'll hear from Rob and Matt um, to outline their thoughts on the intersection of business and politics. So I'll turn the time over to Elizabeth, thank you. Thanks so much, uh, Emily, and also to Ryan for inviting me to be on this panel. So yeah, I wanted to use the five or so minutes that I have to um, share with you what we know on the research uh, side about how politics has been uh, entering the realm of business. I want to you know, be clear, this is a very young and emerging literature, so there's a lot that we don't yet know and a lot that's uh, still to be studied. Um, but I really wanted to highlight three main um, facts. Uh, the one is that Political partisanship um, divides uh, people not just in terms of their positions on uh, spe specific policies, but also in how they view the economy. Um, and here you see a graph from a, a, a pre-research uh, survey that I think shows this um, pretty nicely, where you see that your alignment with a president actually has a strong influence on how optimistic uh, you are about the economy. Um, Republicans tend to be more optimistic when a Republican president is in power, and the opposite uh, is, is true with Democrats being more optimistic when a Democratic president is in power. Now, what we've seen on, in uh, recent years is a literature emerging that shows that we see this not just for the average American, this is kind of what, what this graph here shows, but increasingly we see this partisan perception of the economy also among decision, important decision makers in business and finance, uh, including financial analysts, fund managers, uh, 
um, entrepreneurs, loan officers. And we also um, are starting to see that these decisions actually can matter, or these partisan biases can uh, affect these economic decisions that in turn move prices and can actually lead to uh, misallocation of capital. And then of course, more recently, we see um, a growing partisan gap in views on, for example, inflation, the risk posed by the pandemic. So essentially topics that maybe we wouldn't have perceived necessarily as political, a couple years, a couple decades ago now are increasingly uh, uh, dividing us. The second thing I want to highlight is the rise in corporate political speech. And that is probably matches the perception that a lot of you uh, might have, but it turns out it's actually very difficult to measure. Um, and so this is actually a graph from an ongoing research project that we're hope, hoping to circulate in a couple of weeks. Um, where we looked at corporate tweets and just um, measured how similar do the tweets that companies um, put out there in the world sound relative to tweets sent by politicians. And what you can see there is uh, towards the end of 2017, there's a clear increase overall in uh, corporate political speech, meaning that companies start to sound more like uh, politicians. Before that, they actually on average tended to sound more like uh, Republicans, which might not be so surprising. There's uh, a lot of the topics um, that were covered were things like support of free trade agreements, tax reforms, and so forth. Um, but after 2017, uh, we see a strong increase in particular on um, tweets that are supporting uh, demo, uh, the, the democratic agenda. In particular, uh, in 2020, an increase in uh, the, the statements made about uh, racial injustice um, and inequality. I think what's still very much an open question, and so this is where I would love to hear you know, the, the views of my fellow panelists and, and people in, in the audience is, um, what exactly drove this um, uh, change? And is this uh, just individuals advancing their personal uh, political agenda, or is this companies responding to the polarization that's happening in the society around them? So is this companies um, catering to um, they are you know, trying to attract employees who expect them to take a position on, on certain issues or investors who you know, have, um, in addition to financial uh, returns, uh, care about the positions that the companies they invest in uh, take. And so um, this is very much uh, an, an, open, uh, uh, an open question still. The third fact I want to highlight is that we also seen uh, an increase in um, increasingly political silos in corporate America. So uh, increasingly companies that are led by all Republican, all uh, Democratic uh, teams. Um, here the graph uh, that I'm showing shows you the importance of shared political affiliation in predicting which firms executives uh, uh, work for. So do they work in the same firm? And also here, it's actually quite um, uh, uh, surprising how, how well it lines up with the previous graph. It's also in 2017 that we start to see uh, an increased importance of shared po uh, political affiliation. So essentially this increased um, 
uh, homogeneity, which suggests that you know maybe this, the, the fact that now political uh, issues are being discussed uh, or companies are, uh, are discussing these uh, among their top leadership uh, team kind of leads to this uh, political, uh, political segregation. I also want to emphasize that a, a big part of that actually is a geographical component. So that means companies and uh, Texas, Ohio becoming more uh, re uh, Republican companies and California, New York becoming more Democrat, which is a trend that if I had to make a prediction, you know, post uh, recent decision on, on Roe v. Wade, would, you know, I would expect this to continue. And then the last thing um, that we did in that study was to try to get a sense of, okay, is this trend towards more, towards more homogeneous team a good thing? Is it in the financial interest of the firm? And um, we look at stock price reactions to uh, executive turnovers there, and they actually suggest that this trend towards more homogeneity is actually not in the financial interest of, uh, of shareholders. So in particular, losing executives that bring a different political viewpoint to the, to the firm is actually destructive uh, to firm value. So I'll, I'll stop here and um, you know, look forward to, uh, to the thoughts of uh, Rob and Matt. Okay. Uh, thank you, Emily. It's very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. The only thing worth noting on my resume, which <coughs> you didn't note, is uh, I'm the author of a book called Big is Beautiful debunking the myth of small business. And uh, I don't think you can buy it at a small bookstore, only, only Amazon sells it, so uh, they hate it. Um, so I found your uh, comments very, very interesting. I'd I'm looking forward to learning more about your research, but I think at one level we should be asking the question, not why is business politicized, but what took so long? I mean, Everything is politicized now in America, everything. My favorite sport, the NBA, is now politicized. Uh, I can hardly watch the game sometimes. And NFL is politicized. So everything's politicized. So the idea that somehow this massive part of our economy, of our society, business, wouldn't be politicized, I think it's a thing. So there's forces on both sides of, that are doing that. Um, and on the progressive side, you have to ask why. Because the progressive side is really the bigger engine of politicization of business. They really want to politicize business. And the answer, question is why? And the short answer is the left knows it can't get what it wants through Congress because of, this, because of the filibuster. They're not going to get 60 senators. So they basically have a strategy. And the strategy is twofold. One is to use antitrust, which I, my colleague Aurelian uh, Portus talked about this morning. All you need to do in, in, is get a, get a president who wants to break up companies and off you go. The second thing they want to do is they want to put pressure on companies to achieve their agenda, whether that is a social agenda, a racial agenda, uh, gender agenda, climate agenda, trade agenda, you name it. So the progressives have decided that they're going to be able to accomplish a lot of their goals through business being their uh, agent, if you will. Uh, now, what's ironic about that, I, I recently wrote a piece called The Emergence of Anti-Corporate Progressivism. On the one hand, they love corporations because they can force them to do what they want. They're not going to go to the local bike store that I shop in in Bethesda and picket that because it's a little deeny little bike store. Who cares? They are going to go after Amazon or Exxon or Citibank or whatever. Those are big, visible things. So at one level, they love big corporations because they're pliable and they can force them to do what they want. On the other hand, they hate corporations because they see them as 
just totally antithetical to the world they want to live in, which is everybody working at a worker-owned co-op that has 12 people, and they all wear Birkenstocks. So business now has a choice. Okay, what do I do? I could side with the progressives, uh, and if I do that, um, I probably am not going to lose a lot of support from conservative consumers. Uh, and uh, if I don't side with progressives, they're going to come at me. They're going to pick at me. They're going to have stockholder meetings. They're going to do everything possible to make my corporation look bad. And if I'm the CEO, that's the last thing I want. Um, now, why do they want to do that? Well, one of the reasons they want to do it is that a big share of their customer base are liberals. So if you think about that, um, people with a bachelor's degree earn 75% more over the course of their lifetime than people with a high school degree. So that's a lot of money. And when you look at, uh, when you look at the Pew polling of uh, Democrat, uh, sorry, college educated versus non-college educated, college educated people are much, much more liberal than non-college educated people. And not only that, but much more consistently than Republicans. Republicans, uh, conservatives, and uh, you know, non-college educated, they're like they're liberal on maybe one thing and a little conservative on another and mixed on that. Liberals tend to be liberal, 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 liberal. So they're motivated, they're energized, and they're consistent. 54% of graduate students are liberal now. 12% of people with high school are liberal. So if you're a company, um, you're like, hey, I don't, I don't want to alienate these valuable consumers who actually think about before they buy something. Like, if you talk to the average working class person in America, hey, when you go into a store and you're trying to decide between Haagen-Dazs and Ben and & Jerry's, do you care what their politics are? And the average working class person would go, no, I just happen to like Chunky Monkey, and it's a good price. Actually, they probably don't eat Chunky Monkey, but whatever. So not only that, their customer base they want to appeal to, and that drives them to be, take more liberal positions, but they're knowledge workers. They're, the most valuable workers that companies have are knowledge workers. You can replace your mail clerk uh, or your janitor and not worry too much about it. But if your knowledge workers start to go on strike because they happen to not like a position you take, you know, you get in big trouble. 98% of Netflix employee donations were to Democrats. 90% of IBM corp uh, donations by employees were to Democrats. So they know that if they want to keep their employee base happy, they have to at least signal that they're going along this line. Let's say a couple more quick things. The other thing, and this maybe Elizabeth, I don't know if you've gotten into this or not, but um, there are all of this, all of this now is being driven in part by the finance sector where the finance sector is signaling, I make $180 billion, but it's okay because I like green economy, so don't worry about that $180 billion over here. Just realize I'm doing good things for gender, race, and, and the climate. So the finance world, if you will, rather than have people focus on the old populism, which was rich people versus non-rich people, they're inoculating themselves by doing all of this um, uh, corporate social responsibility. Great case in point is the UN Principles for Responsible Investing. I don't know why the UN is doing this, but 5,000 members, 5,000 financiers, members, including BlackRock. And here's what they say on their website, that when companies are investing... I'm sorry, when, yeah, when these investors are, are deciding which stocks to pick, 
Who are you going to punish? Who are you going to reward in the market? They say, quote, consideration of equity and inclusion alongside diversity is needed to ensure not just equal opportunity. Okay, I'm fine with that. We're all good with that. Equal opportunity. But then they say, but also equal outcomes for all people. So that's a pretty radical statement, really radical statement when you think about it. And that is what BlackRock now has committed itself to. Uh, BlackRock and, and these others have also decided that investors should focus on tax fairness, particularly with the operation of digital platform companies. So now they're going to basically say what? That they want the Europeans to tax American companies? So that's another big reason. You have these investment communities that see this as a low-cost way of signaling virtue. And then if you're a CEO and you don't go along with that, they're going to sell, give you a sell signal, not a buy signal. So you have all three of those things together. You have the customer base, you have the worker base, and now you have the investor base. Now, on the Republican side, and I'll just wrap up, um, Republicans sort of historically were for corporations, but now they don't want to do that anymore because it makes them look like country club Republicans who are out of touch. So you had Paul Ryan, for example, write an op-ed, which, I don't know, maybe Fortune picked the title for it, but the title was Down with Big Business. When you're the Republican leader in the House and you write, a, you write an op-ed down with big business, what has happened to the Republican Party? And one of the points that I wrote in Big is Beautiful is that politicians and policy should be size neutral. It shouldn't be up with small and down with big or up down with small and up with big. It just be everybody's equal. And then you had the Trump notion that these companies aren't really loyal. And so there's this sense. All right. So what do we do? Um, I'm pretty pessimistic that we can do anything, really. Um, ideally, if corporations are smart, which I understand why they're not always, um, and smart in the long run would be to work collectively together to just de-escalate. Because at the end of the day, this is fundamentally going to backfire one way or the other. Either the Democrats are going to be completely pissed off at them, or the Republicans are going to be mad. I mean, Mitch McConnell recently said that. Uh, he said, my warning, if you will, to cooperate to corporate America is to stay out of politics. So McConnell's saying, if the Republicans get in power and the companies keep doing this, there's going to be a consequence. So companies, I think, have gone too far, and uh, they really need to sort of figure out a way to de-escalate and be able to go out and buy Haagen-Dazs or Ben & Jerry's without thinking about politics and thinking principally about ice cream and value. So thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Rob. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you to uh, Emily and to the fellow panelists and to Ryan for uh, inviting me here. I'm delighted to have this uh, opportunity to chat with you all. Uh, so I thought I might frame it in terms of three um, maybe mutually exclusive views on the, on the matter. Um, the, the first is a little bit contrarian. Um, the second is perhaps obvious. And then um, the third is maybe provocative. So the contrarian uh, view of it um, is not all that different from Rob's, which is kind of, you know, why did, what, what took him so long? And my point here is that, you know, business is a uh, profoundly, you know, important in cultural 
uh, aspect of humanity, right? Uh, so this is something that um, Deidre McCloskey has been writing quite a, quite a bit about in recent years. Uh, uh, my colleague Virgil Storr also talks about this. Uh, you know, if you go back to the Greek idea of catalaxy, it's the which is the, the Greek word for economy. Um, it is the process by which strangers become uh, friends through exchange. And so, for thousands of years, people have uh, made their identities part of their business. You know. Uh, Businesses, merchants have been um, making their religion, their culture, their um, ethnicity, their nationality a part of their their uh, business identity, and so it sort of seems um, totally natural that they might do this uh, in terms of business, uh, in terms of politics. Uh, it, increasingly, it makes sense that they might do this as we tend to uh, identify more uh, through our politics and. You know, there's there's a large bit of uh, social science research suggesting that people are less inclined to identify themselves in terms of their race or their religion, but they're more inclined to identify themselves in terms of their politics. Um, and so, it, it, if you think of a business as a bundle, you know, you you go into Ben and Jerry's since 1978. Progressives could shop at Ben and Jerry's and get uh, Chunky Monkey, and also be able to sort of indulge a little bit of their uh, political beliefs. It doesn't seem particularly uh, surprising that that might happen. You can also imagine, however. Um, if, if to the extent that this is the explanation, we can have some testable hypotheses, which it would be there is a reason not to get political, which is you don't want to alienate you know at least half of your your customer base, right? And so why would some firms get more political and other firms get less? Well, based on this model that this just sort of obvious model of uh, the bundling, um, you would imagine firms whose products are less elastically demanded or who have a little bit more uh, market power are going to be more inclined to get political. Um, but the other thing that you're going to, you might uh, guess here, and I think this is going to be true for uh, all these explanations, is that once firms get political, there's going to be a tipping point and they're going to tend to stay that way. So uh, you could think about, you know, Hobby Lobby or Chick fil A. You know, once you're, you're branded as, uh, being the the uh, Republican uh, brand, you might as well just go with it because uh, now you're going to now you're you've indulged that. Uh, okay, so that's kind of the obvious one, uh, or that's sort of the the contrarian view, which is maybe this isn't a big deal. Uh, the second perspective uh, is maybe obvious, but it is important and worth saying, which is the role of technology and particularly social media. So um, not so long ago on. Um, social media, somebody said, when did everything become about everything? And I thought, you know, that's actually a pretty good view of our world today. Um, and the basic idea here is that the difference, you know, the uh, once large gap between public and private no longer exists. So now potentially any activity um, that any of us engages in, anything we say, any walk through the park could be turned into something that is, that can be seen by millions of other people. And so therefore, our private beliefs about politics uh, now have to be, now are, are public. And so again, um, it sort of makes sense through that first uh, view, the contrarian view that um, uh, ho-hum, maybe this isn't anything unusual, is that of course, firms are gonna start indulging this. Uh, an important part about politics, uh, Brian Kaplan is here, and so uh, you know, I have to, I have to uh, um, plug his work, is the idea that uh, politics is increasingly about show, and it's increasingly about indulging in sort of your irrational um, beliefs, because 
it's not, and, and even though we have this perception that politics is about trying to change uh, policy, it's, um, it's especially when you 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 uh, combine it with social media, it's really about indulging um, you know whatever irrational beliefs you have, um, and so that's I think a part of it. And then the final point I want to make, which is maybe slightly more provocative, is that um, maybe this isn't the politicization of business, but it's the business businessification of politics. We'll have to work on the, uh, uh, that phrase. But the basic idea here is that um, firms get political because policymakers uh, get into business. And so um, for this, we need a little background. Go back to 1967. Um, Gordon Tullock uh, suggests uh, this idea of rent seeking that if uh, uh, policymakers are handing out favors to particular firms or industries, then those firms or industries are going to invest uh, scarce resources seeking that those favors. Uh, a few years later, Fred McChesney adds to the idea and says, well, okay, it's not just about poli uh, people expending scarce resources seeking favors, it's also about policymakers threatening punishment or threatening pain. This is called rent extraction, and firms are going to invest scarce resources uh, trying to avoid being um, preyed upon. Uh, okay, so Tulloch introduces this idea, and then a few years later, I, this is one of the things I, I've, I've always admired about him, it's, it's you know, the idea for which he is the most, most famous is rent-seeking, and then a few years later, he then kind of basically has a series of papers in which he says, why is rent-seeking not a big deal? You know, essentially kind of uh, de-emphasizing his greatest contribution, and his, his question is, it's known as the, the Tulloch paradox, is if you can get so much from uh, politics, why do firms invest so little time in it? And empirically, it does seem to be that firms don't spend that much uh, effort lobbying. Why? One way to resolve this is that lobbying is an obvious way to see firms' political activity, but politicization is a less obvious, less measurable way, but it is also rent-seeking. So if a, a, a one valuable asset that a firm could give to a politician who might be handing out uh, favors or privileges is um, politi politically useful statements, right? So if this is what's driving the phenomenon, then what we would be, be wondering is around 2008 or so when you see uh, businesses get more political uh, was... Uh, the business businessification of, of politics happening around that time, where was politics, were business, uh, were policymakers more interested in getting involved in the day-to-day -day affairs of businesses? You would also guess uh, through this hypothesis that the firms or industries where there is a lot more government involvement would tend to be a little, a, a lot more political. Um, so, and you would also guess that the more contestable is the uh, favor or disfavor, then you're going to see more um, politi politicization. And so by that, I mean, imagine a firm that's just everybody loves. Let's say, I, I'm, I think this is roughly true, both left and right love Boeing, right? And both left and right are going to give a lot of, lot of money to Boeing. Um, if, that's, if, if that doesn't fit your priors, pick another, another firm that's, that's bipartisanly popular. But um, if the, to the extent that that's the case, you wouldn't necessarily expect all that much political uh, posturing by Boeing. It's more contestable in, um, markets for favor where you would guess uh, there's going to be a lot more uh, investment in, the, in that type of language. So those are my three views. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure which one is right, but I, I think that that's a nice, uh, a helpful way to frame it is um, 
you know, basically inconsistent with consistent with Bob's or Rob's point is, you know, what took them so long? Um, I think technology has something to do with it. And then I think also it's the reverse phenomenon of, of politics getting involved in business that may be uh, just as explanatory as business getting involved in politics. So that was very interesting. And I think that we've kind of addressed a lot of the, the different explanations for why. But I do want to ask a couple little follow-up questions to that end. Um, the kind of the why is this happening, but why now? And why, in particular, given um, Elizabeth's, your research, that shows that this might be bad for the bottom line, that this could be harmful for businesses? Because a common argument that's made is the reason businesses go along with you know, some campaign on Twitter to do something is that they have to or they will, you know, their profits will suffer. But it seems like perhaps, well, so you're, you were looking more at homogeneity in the corporate board, right? So there, there might be a difference between acquiescing to a Twitter um, campaign, if you will, um, versus homogeneity. But I guess that's what I want to get into a little bit here. And if there's some disagreement, like let's talk about that, the why now and why if it might be hurting the bottom line. Yeah, so I, I actually, um, you know, I agree with uh, both with Rob and Matt that, you know, th this is very likely a strategic, you know, um, th there might be a strategic uh, rationale for companies to to do this. I think they've probably underestimated, you know, some of the costs that go, um, you know, with positioning themselves, uh, you know, on, on, on controversial uh, issues. And I think, um, you know, part of that cost that, that we see is that, um, yeah, you know, it's impossible to please everybody. And so that means you might be actually struggling to retain um, talent, whether it's executive talent or, you know, um, uh, uh, other workers that would actually be a good, you know, fit for the company's uh, uh, business model, but, you know, you're losing them uh, uh, because you, you make these statements. So I think a bit um, on uh, the town the side, these might be costs that have been underestimated. And then in my view, actually, the uh, one of the risks um, really come up is actually uh, the risk that lawmakers would actually retaliate, um, which I think is, uh, is you know, we, we're starting to see. And I think that is uh, also an, another cost that, you know, why businesses might actually realize that, um, you know, may, maybe they're, uh, they're pushing this direction too far. That is at least, you know, in my conversations that I've had with managers is that they're starting to realize a bit that the idea of, um, yeah, bringing, encouraging everybody to bring their whole self to work can actually, you know, uh, be challenging um, if, you know, and that there can be some um, um, benefits from just focusing on the, the product that you deliver um, and, and the ideas that you're selling. Thank you. I think another reason which, um, you know, so if you're an economist, you think about businesses from a, they're, they're rational, uh, and, and if you're in business administration, you understand they're not rational because they're people. And I think one of the things that's happened, a colleague of mine was talking uh, to, uh, I won't say who it was, you would all know his name if I mentioned, a very important leading journalist. And, uh, and my colleague said something modestly okay, that Trump had done something modestly okay. My colleague is not a Trumpian supporter, but you know he's a rational person. And of course, the Trump administration did some good things. Um, this person, the, the journalist's reaction was basically to call my colleague a Nazi and uh, to call the Republican Party the biggest threat to the republic ever. 
So this is not a person who used to be like this. I've known this person for 20 years. This is a person who became that way. And I think that, I think, my guess is there are a lot of CEOs now who have drunk the Kool-Aid. And they actually believe this very hardcore stuff. And they really want to go forward with it. Um, there's, a, there's a quote uh, that I ran across by um, uh, Ken Chenault, who was the former chief executive of Amex, uh, who's a black, leading black business leader. Uh, and he said that um, he was unmoved by calls for chief executives to stay out of politics and that he viewed it as his obligation to keep speaking out on issues he believed in. Excuse me, your obligation as a CEO is not to speak out on issues you believe in. If you want to do that, go do something else. Your obligation as a CEO is to run your company to make the most amount of money. And I'm not saying that his issue is not important or right or wrong. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that he thinks that as a CEO, he has an obligation, not just the ability or the right, but an obligation to politicize his company. So I think that's probably more common than we think. Uh, I agree with everything that's been said. The only thing I might add to it that might be a helpful framework is the idea of X inefficiency. Um, and so this is uh, Harvey Liebenson's uh, contribution, and it's the notion that um, firms really, uh, you know, rarely are, are have a total, uh, you know, are totally tight in terms of producing where marginal cost equals marginal benefit. There's usually some slack, and the more the less competitive is the industry, the more slack there's going to be. And so, you know, you can interpret it, uh, sometimes this is said, is that the, the, the best of all monopoly profits is a quiet life, is being able to just have a, uh, not necessarily always looking over your shoulder at your competitor. And if that's under the normal uh, framework, it's the idea that, well, firms will use their slack uh, to kind of sit back and relax a little bit and then maybe neglect customer desires, neglect costs. But the other way they could use their slack is to engage in their own personal interests in, and some of these may be politics. So another prediction here would be is that, uh, again, the firms that are less um, uh, constrained by competition are going to be more inclined to indulge in their political beliefs. That's a really interesting um, contribution to this conversation about how the role of market power in playing a role in political speech. Let's get... Um, Specific. Let's talk about some concrete examples. I think sometimes that's really interesting to think about how we navigate. Um, so I'm thinking about Disney. Disney versus Governor Rod DeSantis in Florida. Um, so just to kind of briefly summarize, um, there was a, a law in Florida that was controversial that um, the, the governor of Florida had endorsed. And Disney came out against it, perhaps maybe didn't describe it in the most precise detail, um, but they were against it. And then the governor um, responded soon after by removing their tax-exempt status for Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Um, so what are your thoughts on, like, how do you navigate this? Because there's a lot of cross-cutting kind of things going on. Um, like, should they have had that tax-exempt status to begin with? Is this a retaliation for political speech from a business that is actually their First Amendment right? Um, all of those things. How do you navigate some of these kind of concrete situations? Rob, I feel like you, you feel like I could do this. <laughs> so it is their First Amendment right, and it is also Ron DeSantos's First Amendment right to change a law. I mean, that's what it is. The problem with so I think 
you know, I, look, I think Disney did that because they felt like they had to respond to their worker workers there who were really up in arms about that and were saying, hey, you got to do this or else, and Disney went ahead and did it. I think it was a mistake for them. But the, I think what the, the problem, the slippery slope we go down here is we end up with, we, we all know progressives attack big corporations, but when Republicans start doing it, or conservatives start doing it, well, let's use political, when, when Republicans start doing it, you know, is that good for Florida's economy? I mean, maybe it's not. Maybe some at the margin, Disney decides it's going to spend more money in Disneyland or, you know, in California or open something else. Is it good for the global, for the U.S. economy when Republicans attack tech companies? I think it's bad, actually. I think it's bad for the global, for the U.S. economy when they do that. So it feels good. I mean, I understand why Republicans do it, because they're mad and they feel like these companies are not respecting uh, their views. I get that. And I understand why they're mad. Uh, but the problem is it, you end up with pot potentially harmful policies. And at the end of the day, both parties should be thinking about what's the right policy. And demonizing and attacking corporations is not going to be the way to do that. But to the point about policies, what types of policies are you concerned about that this might lead to? Like the what kind of retaliation policies? Well, uh, here's one. Get rid of section, big, big debate on that, but to get rid of section 230, which, uh, which gives companies the right to take down somebody's speech or to keep somebody's speech. I think that's fundamental to the global, to, to the U.S. having a vibrant internet economy. So to, to remove section 230 right. would be a, an example of a problem. Like that would be a bad yes, thing. Yes, that would be problem. a bad thing. And the major reason why Republicans want, the reason the left wants to get rid of it is because they want these companies to take down almost all conservative speech. The reason the Republicans want to get rid of it is because they think they're taking down too much conservative speech and they want to punish them. So this is about punishment. And uh, so that would, that would be one example. I think you, the other example I see is when you see Republicans who historically have been uh, more in the Chicago school of antitrust enforcement, now switching over to the Neo-Brandeisian school of antitrust enforcement because they see it as a way to get back at big corporations who they don't agree with politically. That's not what you're supposed to do. Antitrust should be on, done on its merits, not on, I don't like the politics of this company. Once we start going down that path, we start getting something close to a banana republic. And uh, that's not really what America should be, because once you go down that path, then you start losing all investment certainty. Companies don't know how to play, the, how, how to invest. So I think it's super dangerous, and, and I don't see any sort of stopping points that, that we could have right now. Yeah, I think that's a, a, all those points are, are spot on. I think the um, DeSantis and Disney um, story is a great example of with just the idea that with government uh, shekels come government shackles. And if a, a firm is receiving a particular favor from government, then it's easy then for government to, to impose uh, conditions upon that. Um, and so... Uh, you know, I think that's that's a lot of what we're seeing. The, the other point with uh, Section 230, which uh, that I think that illustrates, is this notion of uh, regulation through raised eyebrow. So, uh, if you're if your parents, um, I'm sure at one point or another, you you've done you've uh, looked at your kid and you've gone right, and you don't even have to impose any rule. You just raise your eyebrow, and the kid, oh, okay, yeah, I'll stop doing that. Um, well, I think that's a lot of what was going on in terms of um, firms were 
the uh, Facebook and, and uh, Twitter were not interested in policing content. They didn't want to get into that business. But the more that they were threatened uh, through uh, raised eyebrow, the more they felt, okay, we do have to start policing content. Uh, that then, uh, it happened, I, the, the content that they were policing was uh, Republicans, uh, Donald Trump in, in particular. And um, you know now uh, the, the response from Democrats is, okay, we're going to, um, or now, now Republicans also want to crack down on them. So it's like you've got both eyebrows raised. Um, you've got both parents raising their eyebrows at, at, the, at the kid, and the kid doesn't know who, who to follow. Um, but I think it's, uh, uh, I think those are the, that's a good way to illustrate it a little bit. Elizabeth, with your research, do you think there is a public policy implication, or do you think that this is more of something that the private sector has to work out on its own, where they just they haven't yet figured out that this is hurting their bottom line? Yeah, I, so I think, yeah, there's no, I don't think there's any immediate uh, policy implications um, just yet. And I think, yeah, you, you could, you know, have the, the view that, okay, if, you know, consumers want, you know, to buy ice cream that is consistent with, with their values, you know, there should be um, a market for, you know, firms to, to cater to that demand. Same for investors. If there's investors that say, yeah, we, um, we have, you know, so certain social goals in mind, there, you know, should be room mm -hmm. for, uh, um, for, you know, funds to emerge that, um, that cater to, uh, to those preferences. Um, and even if it comes as a, at an economic cost, right? Maybe as an investor, you're just as happy, you know, if if uh, you feel like you're investing aligned with your uh, with your moral compass, even if that comes at a financial return. I think kind of being aware and and, and quantifying mm -hmm. the cost is is still important. But in my view, yeah, the the bigger um, the bigger risk of that is actually precisely what we just talked about, that there's this impulse from uh, lawmakers to punish uh, the companies that actually do end up you know, uh, taking a, a position that, that can be harmful. I also want to point out like something that we haven't touched upon yet, which is you know, when business, I think, moves more you know, in, in, uh, into the, uh, having two political camps, that that can actually further exacerbate the divide that we already uh, seeing happening. There's actually uh, interesting research by political scientists that say, for example, the workplace is actually the most important place when it comes to interacting across partisan lines. You're much more uh, likely to encounter people with different political views at work than you are you know, in, uh, at home in your neighborhood. And so I think from that you know, broader societal perspective, you know, the, these, this trend might, might be worsening. Right. Well, thank you. Um, so now I want to open it up to Q&A from the audience. Lots of hands. OK. So we'll just start here, right there, Brian. <laughs> um, I think you have a voice that can project, so go ahead. <laughs> so a lot of totally true comments about the roles of consumers, uh, workers, and investors in decommunization. But there's one puzzle, and the puzzle is the sheer uniformity. It is almost impossible to find any large publicly right-wing corporation in America. It seems like just oh, oh, just the fact that we have such a large economy, you think that there would at least be some other place, 10 or 20% of firms would be taking the opposite view. Anytime you see that kind of uniformity, I say you really should be looking to government. So you need government to get everybody on the same page, especially everyone with a lot to lose. 
Uh, now, where exactly would we blame government for politicization? I say that in the main issues we're talking about, it's got to be discrimination law. You just imagine if there were a corporation that had a lot of corporate propaganda saying, do not make false accusations of racism and sexism. We harshly punish false accusations. Something like that. That would basically be putting a lightning rod up. Why don't you go and sue me for discrimination just for saying something that you could say maybe that's a reasonable policy to say we're very worried about false accusations. So anyway, I guess my question is, to what extent are we forgetting to blame government for politicization, which seems like a, the obvious place to start, actually. Okay, so the question is, to what extent has government politicized business, not through the mechanism that... Okay, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of sort of my my point is uh, I think it's it's not business becoming political, it's uh, politics getting involved in business. Um, the only thing I might challenge you on is I do think if you start to think about it, you can name some conservative or some companies that are associated with conservatism. Uh, you know, I mentioned Hobby Lobby, uh, mentioned Chick Fil A. Um, uh, yeah, my pillow. Uh, you know, brass, uh, bass, uh, pro shops. You know, there's a there are, there are a good number of examples when you start to to run down. Oh, in size, I don't know. Yeah, the Coke Industries. Yeah. I also want to welcome people that are watching with us online, that you can also submit your questions online um, and that I'm able to see them coming through here. But we also want to get through the many hands that we saw here in the room. Um, to kind of go on this side, um, this gentleman right here. Um. Politicization might be a low-cost way of differentiating your product. Um, then one hypothesis might be that more competitive markets, you might see more politicization. Uh, do we have any sense for the relationship between how competitive a market is and how likely the firms in that market are to be uh, engaged in politics? Well, we, we did a study at ITIF looking at the most recent census data on concentration from the 2017 business survey, which is the most recent. And um, what you find is that there is essentially no increase in what's called the C4 concentration ratio at about 850 different industries. C4 is essentially how much market share the biggest four companies have. So the fact that there hasn't been any increase in concentration in the economy, even though the neo-Brandeisians like to tell us and warn us we're in a monopoly crisis, mm -hmm. suggests to me that at least on a temporal basis, that's not that has not been the cause of this. That it's something else. Now maybe on a within a current period that might be related, but not temporally. I don't think. And then over here. This gentleman right here, I don't know who has the three. Thank you. Back in 1971, the Lewis Powell Manifesto denounced the infiltration of the left in politics, <clears throat> in the press, in the universities, academics, uh, and even in business uh, associations. There was a huge reaction in the US, a, a very good reaction. Uh, eventually, uh, <clears throat> the world assumed globalization and free trade and, and, uh, and poverty was reduced to less than 10% uh, worldwide. Between other things, Cato was founded 
at that time. Now we are even worse than in that period of time. Uh, with politics, obviously, the academics, uh, the press, uh, and even business accommodating to the political situation, uh, looking for a benefit in the short period of time. But it will backfire, no? I believe. Where is the new Lewis Powell in the US? We need it, even in, in the less developed world. Could you restate the question just kind of in, in one sentence? No, I, I mean, we need a new Lewis Powell to denounce this penetration of the left in every uh, spaces of our world, which is uh, bringing uh, less uh, development, more poverty, especially across the world. We need something mm -hmm. to be done as it was done then. So, as I understand, I haven't read the, the Lewis Powell memo, but I've, I've read of it, I guess. And from what I understand, you know, essentially he's kind of making the case for uh, economic freedom. We should have uh, lower taxes and less regulation. And I think what's interesting is that there it tends to be a perception that that's what businesses do when they get political, when they really don't. Uh, it, typically, when they get political, they either lobby, they either indulge their beliefs often on social issues that aren't really economic policy, or if they get involved with economic policy, they're asking for particularized uh, policy. They want a regulation that raises their rival's costs, that protects them, or some sort of special benefit. Um, so what's interesting is that to the extent that business really does get involved, it's not in the way that Powell you know, described it. Okay, thank you. I think we have time for one more. Um, this um, woman in the back of the room, could we bring a microphone back there? Thanks so much. I enjoyed all of the presentations. The part that I have a problem with is the com combined statement that, number one, there isn't much we can do about this, and number two, even when Republicans are in power, we should be passive because we don't want to start some sort of a world war politicization. And in contrast to that, you know, I look at someone like Glenn Youngkin, as soon as he comes in, he, he said in the schools, we're going to eliminate critical race theory. Trump tried to do that in the government as well. It seems to me that all of these diversity, reverse discrimination policies could in fact face not just constitutional challenge ultimately, but a strong statement of government, if not legislation, executive order, upholding the traditional American values that we know at least half of the country still adhere to. And the reason why I think this is important, for example, you go to these banks that depend on the government for their charter and say, by the way, we want to eliminate all of that forced uh, reverse discrimination and go to an equal opportunity uh, policy. The reason why I think this is important is because these, the posture of government is a statement of value that shapes the culture. You cannot have one side using it super aggressively and the other side saying, okay, we don't want to fight. Your reaction, please, Mr. Atkinson in particular. Well, you, you just made my point. There's nothing we can do about this because I'm not Look, the reality is the war is going to get more intense. 
the Republicans are angry about it, and they're going to use more things, like they did in Missouri, to not buy use Citibank funding or some company. I got, I got that. So, you know, whether you want to have an equal war, that's a different question. That's not my question. My, my only point was the war is going to keep getting worse because Republicans are now at a point, I think, where they're like, hey, we have been asleep at the switch on this culture war stuff. We got people like Youngkin and, and DeSantos, and so we're going to fight back. That is going to politicize business. That's my only point I'm making. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying the idea that we're going to somehow not politicize business going forward, I think, is, is not right. We're going to politicize business even more. All right. Well, thank you very much to our panelists, to Matt, Rob, and Elizabeth, and for all of you.